Mr. Lance Beaumont, and welcome to the Free Music Ed podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, we're, we're really excited. Um, we knew you back when you lived in Bronwood, Texas, but now you're living in Eugene, Oregon, right? Yes. Yes, I'm actually heading the music program at Northwest Christian University in Eugene, Oregon. Yeah, that's really great. Do you, uh, how, do you have a lot of students or just a few students, or how big's the program? Um, right now the program's about 20 students, um, so it's not too terribly large, but uh, a lot of really cool opportunities going on here, so so that's going to be great. Yeah, that's really cool. Very cool. Um, so what, what all does your program do? Right now what we're doing is we're offering a Bachelor of Arts in Music with three different concentrations. You can do worship arts, music business, or music industry. And we're doing the music business, music industry as two separate concentrations. One's focusing more on production, recording, sort of studio management, and the business side is going to be focusing more on the AR, marketing, advertising, things along those lines. So that's kind of why we're splitting those up in two different, uh, uh, two different areas of focus. That's pretty cool. Um, is there a whole lot of other schools up in that area doing that? Um, not necessarily. Um, the worship arts, there's maybe one or two other schools kind of up on the West Coast that are doing this. Um, and the music business would be the one that most... It's probably more popular. Um, the music industry one, we see more of along the lines of like full sale. You know, in Florida is doing something along these uh, along this line, and mm-hmm. uh, the Musicians Institute down in LA uh, is doing something like this too. So, but we're actually kind of offering that is uh, it's almost like a minor area, if you will. You're getting a Bachelor of Arts in Music with a minor in this in this particular concentration. So, um, so we're kind of. We're kind of trying to bridge the gap between both of those worlds, between getting the, the music training uh, you know, that we feel is necessary for these students, but then also giving them that really um, sort of cutting-edge focus, I guess. Yeah, well, that's got to be hard because it seems to all be changing so much right now anyway. Yeah, yeah, it does. And that's the one thing I tell students when, I, when I'm doing recruiting stuff is that um, <laughs> there's two things I always tell them. I always tell them that, uh, that you're going to graduate with a degree that you can't get a job in. Uh, that there is no ready-made job for a Bachelor of Arts in Music. Uh, I said that's the first thing. I said the second thing is that I can't guarantee anything about what the music industry will look like in five years. Um, Just thinking about how much it has changed since I started teaching in higher education in 2002, uh, it's just, it looks nothing like it did, you know, um, back, you know, what is it, 12 years ago? Or 10 years ago, so. So that that makes it easy recruiting, right? No, it does, yeah. (laughs) So, but the great thing about that is, is it, it really challenges you as a uh, as an educator because there's you're kind of prepare you're really teaching students or you're preparing them for jobs that don't exist. And so, what I'm really trying to focus on is is giving students tools so that try, or trying to develop tools in them so that they can be uh, my two buzzwords are agile and adaptable. Um, agile because the industry changes so rapidly. And then adaptable, um, just being able to use those skills to to maneuver wherever they need to, whether that's you know, um, you, you know, I don't even know where it's going to go, you know, but just being adaptable for where uh, for wherever music is going to be in five years. I wonder if we could go down that rabbit hole a little bit, if that's okay. Just talking about the change of the music industry, the change of um, 
just just the way that we're getting our content and all that kind of stuff and the way that content's produced these days. Um, I think it's really fascinating. I mean, I don't know, what's what's your whole perspective on it, on, on just where it's going, where it's come from? Um. I mean, I'm I'm really happy where it's where it's where it's come from. I mean, we've sort of removed a lot of the bureaucracy, uh, and we've put the, uh, you know, we put the responsibility back on the artists now, and so artists have more control or the opportunity to have more control over their product, um, and but that in turn that makes them have to focus more on the entrepreneurial side of it, um, but you can do that and you can do it successfully. One of um, uh, I think one of the most incredible artists um, doing some really good stuff today is um, someone named Zoe Keating, and she is a DIY um, artist, composer, cellist, um, and she's just doing a bang up job with um, uh, with her with her with her art and and with her followership. And uh, but she's come out uh, publicly and said about royalties, and she could almost care less whether she gets paid royalties in cash, um, you know, receiving the checks from the, uh, you know, from ASCAP and whatnot. She would actually rather be paid in data, um, actually having the information of email addresses, locations of people that download her music so that she can better, um, you know, better market herself, you know, so that she can go to those places where she has high concentrations of, of uh, fans and things along those lines. So it's really interesting how data is now becoming almost as important or more important in some situations than, than the cash is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's really neat because I was looking at uh, the, the web channel Geek and Sundry the other day, and uh, Felicia Day said, look, when you get done, if you'll go to our Facebook page and like us, it doesn't cost you anything, but it means a whole lot to me. And it's, it's become a currency. Oh, yeah, yeah, it has. I mean, because, I mean, you know, data, you know, if you, if you work in marketing or even here when I'm talking to the admissions department, you know, you can buy leads where someone, you know, that has sort of done the data mining for you will, um, will sell you information of students that sort of fit your profile and you'll pay top dollar for it. So if you can generate that information for free, I mean, that's, that's, that's as good as gold. Um, one of the things that you're doing right now that's really cool, too, is that you're still working for Howard Payne University in Brownwood, Texas, even though you're now in Oregon. Um, can, can you tell us a little bit about that? That's pretty cool. Yeah, so, so when, I, when I, I told um, uh, the dean there that I was going to be leaving, um, uh, he was having a hard time kind of replacing, uh, finding you know, someone to, to fit, fit the position in such a short time. And so he asked me if I would continue to, to teach virtually. And this was actually something we had sort of done a pilot testing on just in the building. We had you know, a faculty member in one room, and then we had uh, stuck a, a vocal student in another room. And we had tried to see how this would work, just teaching via Skype and whatnot. Um, that was what we were using. I tend to, to favor FaceTime just because of the, the quality being uh, a lot better than what we have on Skype. But anyway, so we kind of started doing that. And, and it's something that we kicked around of actually doing a Bachelor of, bachelor of Music degree completely online, 100%. So we've continually talked about that. And so, uh, so he was aware of, of my interest in it. And, and I had been doing some research on it as well as Dr. Tucker. And so... Uh, we just thought we'd give it a shot. I mean, it couldn't hurt. You know, I had already established relationships with the uh, students that were in the program. And so, uh, so anyway, so it's it's gone really well. Um, like, uh, what are what are the advantages and what are the hurdles? Obviously, being able to teach from anywhere is the main advantage. But uh, are are there other things that people seem to do better? Um, uh, let, me, let me start with the hurdles before I get to the advantages, because um, it seems like you know, I'm, it seems like I'm more aware of the hurdles because there are things that I wish I could change 
you know, today because of just te- you know, being in the midst of teaching students. The one thing that really stinks is just not being able to reach over and, and, and move a finger or move a hand position or something like that. So it, it takes a lot more uh, a lot more out of me as far as, you know, thinking of how I'm going to phrase something and say something about hand position or just phrasing in general. Um, the audio quality is really kind of detrimental to teaching, um, especially classical music, because, you, you know, when you're working on nuances or phrasing or something like that, on the classical guitar, when you're working on, you know, the differences in timbre, uh, you know, as far as how much nail you want to incorporate or, you know, flesh and things like that, it's really hard to pick up those nuances. Um, but on the flip side of that, one of the things I try to do is get our students to, um, uh, to upload recordings to SoundCloud. And so I've got a device, uh, a Tascan Tascam IM2, which actually plugs right into the iPhone um, or iPad, and it's a really great recording device, and what it does is it turns your iPhone into a field recorder, so you can just uh, record, um, you know, they'll, they'll record like a piece, and then they'll upload it to SoundCloud, which you can do right from the app, and what SoundCloud does is it gives me the opportunity to listen to the track that they've recorded and place comments um, along the timeline. So that a student can see exactly what I'm referring to, you know, about if they've missed a note or if I want, you know, you know, maybe try this as far as phrasing or something like that. So that kind of helps out a little bit um, with the audio, um, with the audio quality issue. Um, so those are kind of two really big things right there. Is just you know the not having that that tangible thing of sort of reaching through the screen and and moving a hand position and the, just the audio quality. Those are sort of the two uh, the two things I wish I could fix, but. But those are the most challenging. So you want me to get you want me to go to some good stuff now, or yeah? Well, I'm, I'm already <laughs> thinking of good stuff. I'm thinking just that tool that you're talking about using now, having them put it onto SoundCloud, and you being able to comment. I mean, sheesh, it doesn't matter if you're Skype or not. That could be a really good idea, just to get your kids listening to themselves, and uh, that's so cool. Yeah, and it can actually be something really beneficial to use with, um, uh, you know, just use with. I'm thinking of maybe like like as in sectionals or something. Um, you can actually have a group of you know, in your case, clarinetists, you know, working together and maybe they re- they record their parts. Uh, one person uploads, you know, if you've got, uh, you know, clarinet one or two, someone can upload their part. They can practice, rehearse along with um, with the other person's part or students can kind of jump in and, and kind of help each other with um, uh, with the project. So get some sort of peer learning stuff going on because um, they can share the information or they can actually follow, you know, someone on SoundCloud. So it can become a really nice collaborative tool as well. That's really neat. I like that. Are there other advantages you were thinking of? Um, well, one of the other advantages that I, that I really, that, that I kind of like is the ability to kind of pull from a lot of resources that I have on my laptop, for example, you know, just being able to share the screen. So if I've got, if I'm talking about something, you know, and I'm like, oh, you know, that reminds me of this. Well, I can just reach in a folder and just pull out a document and either share it on the screen so they can see it or they can, you know, I can share my desktop. Um, or I can immediately upload them files. Um, and another benefit is just having my computer or my, you know, I do a lot of it on my iPad, having it available so I can just, you know, uh, input comments quickly. Um, so it kind of helps from that standpoint too, um, just being able to give them that that sort of rapid feedback in places that they will most likely see it, you know, their inbox or, you know, I might upload a document, you know, to a Facebook message or something like that. So, Yeah. That's great. Um, do you see that audio quality improving anytime soon? 
uh, as being the major drawback. I, I guess that even with those good mics on people's iPads, iPads, <laughs> iPads exactly and iPhones, what they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, does it take and uh, automatically downgrade that quality as soon as you start streaming? Do you know? Uh, as far as SoundCloud? Well, no, I'm sorry. Whenever you were saying you had people record on their stuff, couldn't they use that while using FaceTime? Would that improve the quality? Is it a mic issue or just a, a FaceTime issue? Well, they, they can. Actually, FaceTime is, is, uh, is, is, is a lot better for the audio quality and the video quality. On Skype, I kind of get, like we're, we're experiencing now, a little bit of graininess. Uh, and so I can still see what's going on, you know, kind of get an overall picture. But on FaceTime, um, it's either on or it's off, it seems like. And so, but with FaceTime, I can actually see more about finger placements. Um, you know, I can kind of tell, you know, that, oh, you're using this fingering. Why don't you try this? And then I can demonstrate as well um, the different fingerings that I might be thinking about. So, so with, with, with FaceTime, I'm much happier with the quality than I am with, um, than I am with Skype. So, but I mean, that's, that takes up a lot of bandwidth. There are some schools that are doing this sort of, um, the voice, what is it? Voice over network protocol or something like that. I think is what it's called. They're doing it with really high bandwidth. TCU is actually doing this with, uh, the Royal College of Music in London, with some of their students um, being able to take piano lessons or percussion lessons, and the quality is, is obviously way, um, way better than what you get from, uh, from Skype or FaceTime. I was going to ask, you know, you're talking about doing an entire Bachelor of Music Education degree. How do you envision somebody pulling off their senior recital like this? Um, that's, that's a good question. The, the big sticking point for me was the ensemble, not the recitals. Um, you know, the, the, re- the recitals I think you could probably be really creative with, uh, you know, doing live performances or having someone just book their own own performance somewhere at a church or, um, you know, a local university or something like that. And, uh, you know, and then just kind of recording it and, and having the assessment done that way. Um, but the ensemble was the one that I thought would, would, would really be a challenge. Uh, so the only thing that we kind of came up with at the time was to do the ensemble recordings or to do the ensemble participation with either partnering with a local community, uh, community uh, college or university um, or even trying to do that as part of, you know, just local church groups or something like that. So, but I think you could kind of get creative with it and still meet uh, the NASM standards. Yeah, I, and I, you're right. Why couldn't you just have your recital wherever you're at and send a video to your professors? Right, exactly. That's, a, that's yeah. pretty cool. Maybe, uh, maybe they need to do a, a Skype, uh, not Skype, a GarageBand jam session for their. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, who knows what it's going to be like? You know. Um, all right. So uh, let me ask you another question or two. One of the things that got this whole thing started uh, was I saw one of your tweets. Uh, you were at a music convention and you said. It's remarkable how narrow uh, our definition of music education seems to be, that it's all band directors, choir directors, orchestra teachers, and elementary music teachers. Um, and, of course, I replied, the reason for that, there's not as many guitar classes, is because guitars are evil. Right, exactly. Uh, <laughs> obviously the answer. But uh, you, you've done some, uh, some research and a lot of stuff on class guitar as a, a school ensemble for like high schools and middle schools and elementaries and things. Can you tell us some about that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I tend to get my, I, I tend to kind of uh, stir up a little controversy when I throw out my comments about music education um, being so narrow. But it's true. I mean, if you were an alien and, alien and you dropped into some of our music education conventions uh, 
and TMEA, I know you guys are just there, and I've been there numerous times. If you walk through the convention hall, if you go visit the um, the sessions, they're all geared toward those four elements. Um, they're either how you improve your band, uh, classroom management for your choir, um, you know, string ensembles, or uh, general music. But very few of them actually are trying to do uh, incorp- cap or capitalize on other instruments that are really driving the the, the market. Um, you know, if you look at what's going on with NAM. Um, the North American Music Merchants Association, um, what what they report um, in their uh, in as far as instrumental sales, I mean, is rhythm instruments are through the roof, but those are actually instruments that we shy away from uh, in in public school. So what I was often um, thinking about, and what my research is kind of geared towards, is this idea of using guitar as an instrument that could sort of meet state standards for those that have well-defined standards like Texas does as far as, you know, what um, students should learn or need to know, uh, you know, musically and whatnot. And um, and then also meet what I consider to be the true beauty of music education, and that's preparing someone for a lifetime of music enjoyment. Um, I feel like we have so many instrumentalists that are great euphonium players but will never pick up their instrument once they graduate high school. And so I don't, I, I can't really say that that's great education on our part as musicians and music educators. I think that we're using them for, for really performance um, hardware, meaning that how many trophies and plaques can we get on our band hall wall? So what I would rather us see is to see us move away from the competition mindset and see us try to um, develop communities of 20-somethings and 30-somethings who know how to collaborate with um, with instrumentalists, uh, other instrumentalists without a conductor, without music scores. Um, and so part of what I was doing or what I am, am interested in with guitar um, cl- classes is bringing in sort of that popular music pedagogy element into uh, into the classroom. So letting students not only learn, gain skills through someone's expertise, you know, um, you know, just my study on, on the guitar and teaching it, you know, just things that I can show them and, and, and help them learn, but then also for them to take those skills to give them a platform to use those skills in an ad hoc fashion, you know, not going through um, didactic literature necessarily 100% of the time, actually giving them opportunities to compose, uh, to create melodies, to write songs, to record them, to mix them, to uh, to jam together, to make mistakes in improvisation, uh, to actually try to jam a pentatonic scale into any possible genre that they possibly can, you know, just whatever they can possibly do, just to really take their skills and actually use them in something that, that they might be doing when they graduate from high school. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about what you're talking about, and uh, that's that's the trick, is that whenever you get out of school and there's no longer a band, what do the euphonium players do? And the kids who, uh, you know, play instruments that, they just they aren't going to run into in real life. Whereas the guitarists do the opposite thing. They all get into it because they really like music and had to pursue it on their own and they are really excited about it. But I think, and, and other than, as you were saying, performance hardware, the reason we've got this in schools other than tradition is that uh, you can have 60 to 80 kids in a band uh, and you can have a program with 200 students in it and just have two teachers. How can guitar, can they ever meet those type of number issues? 
Probably not, but I think that you could probably hire more faculty just due to the cost differential between band equipment and guitars. I mean, you know, how many guitars can you purchase for the same price of a sousaphone? Uh, and so your your operating cost as a department would decrease immensely. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that guitar is the save-all as far as music education is concerned, um, but, you know, with a guitar class and with doing sort of this incorporating informal learning styles um, and, and more of this rock band kind of mentality, uh, the, this, the class size would have to be small, but it doesn't have to be, you know, five students. I mean, I think you could pull this off successfully with 20 or 30 students within a class, but, uh, but I totally see where you're going with that, you know, that you can't obviously, uh, you know, meet a, a, a broader student population with, with a band ensemble, so. You know, I think the whole direction that music education needs to be heading is um, just a mindset of change. And, I mean, we've been doing the same thing for a 100 years or longer. We really haven't changed our system at all. And so to be able to introduce new ideas like this, like more guitars and more um, bass players and stuff like that, we're going to have to find a point where we do become open to changing the system that we're using and maybe not trying to fit it into what we already have, but just developing something brand new, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. You know, I mean, we, we kind of had this this movement with um, with jazz education. You know, now it's, I mean, it's so commonplace. I mean, every school seems to have a jazz ensemble as well, which is fantastic. But, you know, I mean, back in, what, the late 60s, um, you know, early 70s, I mean, that was, that was you know, just unheard of, you know, that if you had a jazz ensemble, you were just a cutting-edge, you know, um, school and had a great cutting-edge music program. You know, so I think the change is coming, but I think one of the reasons why it's been so slow with guitar is because of how new it is. I mean, we've got, you know, guitar only being offered as a, as a area of focus in the late 50s and then not until like the early 1960s here in America. Um, I think 1963 is when it was uh, the first um, bachelor of, uh, program, bachelor of music program with guitar as a focus was offered here. So we've got a very short time uh, in higher education and most of that focus has been on performance and, and not necessarily on pedagogy. Uh, yeah, I, and th- it makes me wonder: is if it were a hundred years ago, uh, would we be having these same discussions about any number of instruments? Uh, do you uh, are there some innate things you think about guitar education other than it's in the popular music that all the kids are listening to? So obviously they're going to connect with it. Are, are there other things specifically about the guitar do you think should be pretty attractive to students and to teachers? Um, I think one of the things about the guitar is you don't have to necessarily know. It's not about the popular music. That's not what really interests me about the guitar. And 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 it, I mean, sure. I mean, it it kind of has that you know quote unquote. I mean, excuse me for lack of my term, but quote unquote you know sex appeal. You know, it does have have that kind of you know um, benefit. But it's not necessarily about about the types of music that it, that can be played on the instrument or the fact that um, you know students can play the. the type of music that, that they want, uh, what really interests me about the guitar is that a student can play complex music, I mean relatively complex music, in a short period of time without knowing anything about music notation. Um, for example, I can teach someone how to play a major scale pattern in two octaves and show them how to do that in all 12 keys without them knowing anything about music notation whatsoever. So, But if you wanted to do that on a wind instrument, it's going to take you a really long time to develop that skill within a student. And I can do that with probably within 15 or 20 minutes uh, on the guitar. And so just because of the nature of the instrument, it allows people to, to get the depth of musical enjoyment more quickly without having to, uh, to learn how to play you know, a quarter note 
whole note and then to play these different pitches that, uh, that correspond to it so they can actually make a melody. Um, so that's kind of one of the major benefits that I see that it, it kind of gives them that satisfaction very quickly and very early on. That That's huge because I know my students, there's this initial excitement like, oh, I've got this instrument. And then after about 10 minutes of trying to produce a tone and make any type of sound or music whatsoever, all that excitement goes away for about six weeks. Right, yeah. You know, un- until we've built enough skill. And I like what you're saying with the patterns. Even on wind instruments, I try to teach my kids, especially on woodwinds, finger patterns before we ever talk about notation. That way they just feel like they're making music. Right, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, how many beginning band concerts have you been to or their Christmas concerts where you hear like, you know, what is it, up on the rooftop, you know? <laughs> it's like, you know, because that's, that's those are the only notes that they've learned how to play, you know, and the only rhythms that they, that they kind of have mastered at that point. Well, it's like, I mean, you know, as a student, if that's all you're playing is your part on that particular piece, I mean, how much musical satisfaction are you really having up to that point, you know? And so if there's a way to speed that up through maybe changing our methodology a little bit or maybe even changing our philosophy at that point, I mean, as well, that we're trying to give them more musical depth before we give them the literacy that goes along with it, you know? I mean, for example, you know, my son is, is just about four and, you know, doesn't know how to read yet, but yet he speaks really, really well. And so, you know, I didn't wait in order to teach him the mechanics and, and the, the the literacy aspect of it before I taught him how to speak. Exactly. You you just kind of run into kind of one of my huge speeches that I've kind of let loose on this uh, podcast a couple of times now, <laughs> talking about learning the music and getting into the music like uh, the way that we learn speech. Right. I, I just saw a thing yesterday, um, these TED Talks, there's one that's like um, ed.ted.org, and um, Victor Wooten had just released something, I'm sure you've seen it again, and uh, you know, being the bass player you are, um, that he's talking about music as a language. Now, I do believe that music is a language, it's not a universal language, but it is a language, and he's just kind of talking about that concept about, you know, just sort of learning how to play music just by, you know, using the same way that you learn how to speak, uh, and of course we see that with, you know, Suzuki as well. Um, you know, with his mother tongue approach. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, okay, a couple other things. You're endorsed right now by a couple of guitar companies, and you have a book that you wrote that's pretty popular. Um, can you can you tell us some about a little bit of that? Yeah, I just uh, um, I, I do a little bit with uh, with Alhambra Guitars, um, uh, which is a classical guitar company out of Spain, um, and then uh, Shub Capos. I'm just kind of more of like a you know, I've just gotten a few capo, few free capos along the way. I, I love them, and that's what I use on, on my guitar. Um, so there's a couple of couple of shout outs there. But um, uh, but the, the book is the Capo Chord Book, uh, published by Mel Bay, and that actually started off as um, just kind of some uh, some feedback that I received from from people that I'd run into. Um, I used to do a lot of music at youth camps and whatnot, and I'd use a capo, and then when I got into partial capoing, I'd use multiple capos and People would always ask me, you know, beginning guitarists, you know, well, how do you use a capo? Where do you know where to put it? And so I just had a wild idea. You know, I'm like, I'm going to write a little book on that. And so I told some friends of mine that I was uh, sort of doing a lot of stuff with, and they laughed at me. And uh, so I wrote the book, and I was just going to... That gonna, means it was a good idea. Yeah, you know. So uh, so I was just going to self-publish it and whatnot. And uh, so anyway, so I just submitted the manuscript to Mel Bay, and they, uh, they picked it up, and it's actually become one of their best sellers. So every, you know... So it's kind of fun to get to rub that into your your friends' noses, you know. That's that's actually the entire reason I'm looking for success in life. Is to <laughs> Just to rub it in people's noses. Yeah. Who didn't think it happened? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, okay, uh, a quick question here too. Uh, you recently did a blog post. You've got a website, uh, and this blog post was specifically about practicing and some of your advice. Uh, could you share some of that advice with us? Sure. Was that the one I did? Uh, I put out today. Yeah, the one you put out today. See, I do my research. Yeah, you <laughs> did. You did. Um, oh goodness, let me pull up the post. I don't even remember what I wrote. Uh, <laughs> No, I think what I was talking about today was just this idea of, uh, I think I titled it Practicing While the World is on Fire or something like that. I've got to, I've got to get better at my titles. They're kind of, they're kind of lacking. Um, but what the whole thing is, it's, I've never been um, sort of busier with my time than I am now, you know, more divided just with doing research stuff and then my family. My kids are now at the point where they're doing pre-competitive gymnastics, pre-competitive swimming, and so they're having to go multiple times a day. Oh, and they're also doing dance on top of that. And so, and, and my son is now going to be doing t-ball coming up in, in the next month. And so it's like, you know, just completely going nuts here. And so what I'm having to do is to figure out where I can throw in moments of practicing. Because I'm also finding that even though I can't, don't have large blocks of time to practice, I'm actually being needing to perform more. Um, uh, and so... <laughs> So I'm kind of I was kind of stuck, and so what I've been trying to do is to find out the, some really efficient ways to to maximize my time, and so some things I was I came up with was this idea of always having my material with me, and I've told students that over the years about you know for example your guitar when they kind of complain of not having practice time I'm like just keep your guitar with you when you've got 20 minutes just practice, so I was kind of heeding my own advice there, but I made sure I had all my materials with me, um, so I would carry on a binder, and then you know I'm like well you know well. Hey Dodo, you've got an iPad. Why not put your materials on there? And so I just put the scores I'm working on on my iPad. Now I'm also put them on Dropbox. That way, if I need to, if I don't have my iPad, you know, I've got my phone with me all the time, so I can pull it up on my iPhone, uh, and I can do that. And so, so just making sure your materials are with you, and then using any available moment. Um, there's a, uh, I can't remember his his last name, but he goes by Robert D. Um, he came out with a book. Um, Oh, goodness, I wish I could remember this. Um, but it's like 20,000 hours and counting. Um, not 20,000 hours, 20,000 days and counting. And so he figured out that he lived 20,000 days. And Anyway, it's a, it's a really cool book. Um, so cool, I can't remember his name. Um, but his whole you, thing you, is that... Yeah. You, you know, can email it to me and I'll put it on the post. Okay, okay, good. But his whole thing is that uh, you, know, you can write a book in 15 minutes, uh, in 15 minute time chunks. And that just really kind of hit me. It's like, you know what, uh, 15, minutes, 15 minutes of practicing can be a really, uh, uh, you can get a lot done in 15 minutes if you just are prepared and you're focused and you, you max and you take advantage of that. So just making, you know, just using whatever time you have and then practicing intelligently, you know, working on harder um, pieces of, of the music first, um, you know, and then working your way um, to easier parts. Um, and the reason why I threw that out there is because most of my students tend to work from the easier to the more complex, which, you know, you get the easy stuff down and it starts sounding great. You never want to play the hard stuff. You just want to play what sounds really nice. And so, you know, just working on that uh, and then obviously bringing it back in front of you consistently. You know, if you if you learn something new early in the day, just play it again later in the day um, just to kind of start moving it from your short-term to your long-term memory um, and your fingers just so that, you know, you can build that off into your muscle memory. And then the maintenance. NASA did some sort of study where they figured out that the brain needs six to nine hours to actually 
remember what you were doing with your muscles to kind of learn that muscle memory and that if you practice something and then come back to it six hours later you'll actually be really successful because that your brain had just enough time to digest it and kind of figure out what was going on right yeah and i've even seen studies too that, that just talk about you know that the if you if you if there's too much time in between something you've learned and then the next time you revisit the material that you know it, it decreases you know your ability to remember it decreases by so much you know as, as time elapses elapses and so you know just to try to make you want to just try to bring things back in front of you um periodically so if you learn something in the morning after lunch look at it again and then after dinner look at it again and so what i would say to a student who's practicing a, a new passage um that if you've worked on it in the morning you've, you've kind of feel good about it things are moving well just play through it one time after lunch once or twice and then do the same thing after dinner just to kind of just get your fingers moving back through that pattern and get your eyes, you know, seeing what, what you're working on again. Get your ears hearing it, you know, um, just to build that into into your long-term memory, your muscle memory. And then the last thing is maintenance, you know, just making sure that you don't neglect your technique, which, man, that's easy to do when you're, when you're really in, in the heat of the battle. Because mm-hmm. it's like, you know, if I've got a gig coming up and I've got to play a new piece of music or a piece of music that's been sort of assigned to me, uh, I mean, the last thing I'm going to do is spend time working on my technique. But I found that when I do that, it's kind of like, you know, not maintaining, you know, doing maintenance on your car. Things begin to break down a little bit. My tone's not as good. My fingers don't move as well. Things like that. So just making sure you're kind of, you know, revisiting your technique periodically. Uh, there was uh, there was one other thing that I really wanted to talk to you about before we finish out this podcast. And that is you you really get into music technology a lot. Uh, and we've talked a little bit about what you're doing with distance lessons, but what what are the things that you see going on right now in music and music education technology that we should all be really excited about? I attended this thing last year, um, the South by Southwest Education uh, Ed Conference, which is um, you know South by Southwest EDU, which is a great conference, by the way. If you ever get a chance to go, it actually happens right before the festival. But one of the things that I begin to experience by that, because it's in Austin and because it was kind of coinciding with the South by Southwest Festival, is that there were a lot of tech entrepreneurs there. And what I began to kind of find out is that most of the people that are sort of spearheading the, the education technology um, aspect, is and most of those people are actually just guys trying to make their, their, their millions of dollars um, like, you know, like all these other guys in Silicon Valley. And they really don't have a good understanding of pedagogy. And so we've got all of these apps coming out. And well, let's just flip this over to music now. And so with music, you have tons of things that are coming out for music, for musicians, for music educators. But most of them really don't have any idea what they want to accomplish uh, when it comes to pedagogy. They have no grounding in that. Um, nor do they really have a grounding in music that would that gives them the level of expertise that they probably should have in the development of the apps and things like that. So one thing I'm seeing is that we've got a big market out there with very little substance, if you will. Um, I mean, I've played around with a number of applications, I mean, in music software, and a lot of it is just really not going to meet the needs of music educators for the long term. I think it might kind of help out for for a short period of time and get students maybe, you know, 5% along the way in, in a given year. But that's one of the things I'm seeing. And so what I hopefully will happen is in the future that we're going to, uh, schools of music will see that this is a great need, that we need to turn out music educators that um, have a really good understanding of or, or have developed a really strong uh, te- technology pedagogy, if you will. Um, that's one thing. And the second thing is that I would really like to see us sort of moving to requiring 
coding as a foreign language requirement in, in higher education, um, which I think that that one's probably going to be coming sooner than later, so that when you are uh, when you figure out or when you find that you have a specific need and that you feel the technology can meet that need, you can actually start working on that yourself and building that out um, because you have the you know the the means by which to do it. So, so that's one thing I'd like to see. Um, I, one thing I'm doing here is in the fall, I'm going to be um, I'm going to a one-on-one uh, one-to-one iPad initiative with all of our music students, and I'm going to integrate this technology across the curriculum. I'm also doing our curriculum a little bit differently than most schools of music, but that's can be another podcast episode or we can talk about after this. I mean, I've got you know I'm still available for some more time if you want to, but I'm doing that because again of the availability, you always have the iPad with you, you know, for the most part. Um, there are some really great applications for music theory and ear training um, that, that students can use, you know, that, that are really good, like the Aurelia software, for example, um, that you might have experienced in your undergraduate studies. They really help with ear training, you know, um, in the music theory. So we've got some of that stuff, and there are, I mean, a whole host of other apps that are really great. Um, the music notation, um, there is another music notation app that's on the, the verge of being released. I think it's called Think Music. I could be wrong on that. I'll, I'll, I'll look that up and send that to you as well. Uh, but they're coming out with a music notation app. Um, they've actually been beta testing it, and so it, it should be released in the fall, where you can actually notate on the iPad with a stylist. You hit a button, and it turns it into graphic notation. And so you can write on there. You can actually write chord symbols, um, just like you would on a piece of sheet music. Hit a button, turns it into graphic notation. And so you get kind of the best of both worlds with that. You get you know students learning how to do it by hand, but then you also get sort of the beauty of you know computer notation. I, I I've totally seen that application. Uh, yeah, they had a video and a Kickstarter recently. I'll have to see how that went. But you know, but when you think about using something like this for music history, you know, and trying to develop listening skills in students, you know, having uh, your databases available, Spotify, for example, you know, if I want students to listen to Monteverdi, I mean, I can. Uh, kind of send them a Spotify playlist, if you will. And so uh, from that standpoint, you know, it, it's a device that, again, is with them that they can use and uh, and also with the recording capabilities on this, too. Um, I'm also going to be re- requiring our students to do um, an interface, an audio interface. Uh, the Focusrite iTrack Solo is the one I'm going for just because of uh, it's a really great little interface. So students can record um, their practicing. They can actually record their lessons. They can, uh, like, kind of do what we were talking about earlier with the the SoundCloud example. You know, send their their applied music instructor, um, you know, some some files throughout the week just to kind of receive um, uh, feedback other than just at their lesson time. So, so it's just going to be some. It's going to be kind of a little bit of a learning curve next year. But that's one of the things I'm doing with the iPad just because of the portability issue. Um, so I didn't get quite too futuristic on you. How futuristic do you want to go? Well, that's pretty good. That's a lot of what I'm seeing is that we're taking things that we already do and we're integrating them all into uh, you know one package, into one device, and we're just simplifying the way that we are able to integrate them into our teaching. Uh, and so that's great. That's that's exactly what we need to be doing. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's just, I mean, you know, I mean, my my my, my three year old can totally work my iPad. I mean, he. Yeah, he, he knows how to manipulate everything. What really hit me about the iPad, too, was when he was two, I was in the kitchen doing something, and I heard these drum sounds coming from the living room. Well, he and I were the only two at home, and I look across, you know, peek around the corner, and so he's sitting on the couch, and he's got the garage band open, and he's figured out how to pull up the smart drums on there, and so he's playing the drum kit, you know? <laughs> and this is, and he's, and he's two. You know what I mean? And, perfect, yeah. And so, so even with that, I mean, we could even use that, you know, sort of in... in, in 
in general music, you know, for the younger students, we don't have to go the recorder route where, again, you have to develop a lot of expertise. We can kind of use uh, technology to, you know, to kind of start developing uh, music awareness, you know. And you don't have to deal with the room of 30 screaming recorders anymore. You know, that, that, that too. You can plug in headphones. That's the other advantage about the guitar we hadn't really talked about. You can plug in headphones if you've got an electric guitar. That should please parents everywhere. You can. So another thing that I've actually done with, uh, with you know, the technology with the iPad and, and the electric guitar is, um, you know, just using a little interface like this, I can plug my electric guitar right into this and, you know, and record something and send it off to students. I was trying to, um, uh, we were doing something once uh, with, um, like, e-blues or something like that. And so I wanted to give them a backing track. Well, I just thought it'd be faster for me to just record one than, than it would be to find one on the Internet. So I opened up GarageBand on my iPad found a little cheesy shuffle uh, drum loop, pulled up the smart bass and kind of laid down a little bass groove. And then I just plugged my guitar in and laid down a guitar groove on top of it. So within 15 minutes, I had a backing track that I sent, you know, emailed to all my students directly from GarageBand. And that was that. So, um, so it's a neat little device from that standpoint just to use to kind of enhance what your students are doing. Well, uh, we don't want to keep you too much longer because we know you have an adorable family at home that, as you said, I imagine you're quite busy with. So, uh, <laughs> Um, is there anything that you wanted to talk about today that we talked over you and didn't allow you to get out? No, I feel like I did most of the talking. I didn't let you guys get a, you know. Oh, that's what we like. That's, that's what everybody likes. Yeah, everybody likes it a lot better. Uh, anyway, well, we really thank you a lot for uh, for coming on the podcast. We'll have to have you again soon because I think we've got plenty of more things to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd love it. Yeah. It's a great thing you guys are doing. All right. Well, we really appreciate it. At this point, I'm going to go ahead and say goodbye to our listeners, and we'll shut off the recordings. All right. Freemusicet.org. That's right. Freemusicet.org. You guys keep practicing. (laughs) 